If you're able, would you remain standing for a moment longer? I'm going to be reading from the Word of the Lord in Psalm chapter 5, the fifth Psalm. So this is the Word of our Lord, Psalm 5. To the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. For they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray to bless the preaching of your word this morning. For asking in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's great to be in a church in which the Lord blesses with elders that are capable of preaching and teaching. And we get to hear from Elder Hollander this morning. Thank you, Pastor Lero. With a quick show of hands, how many of you noticed that our first hymn this morning um, matched our scripture reading just a moment ago? Oh, good. That's great. That's great. That's great. I wasn't sure what to expect, but there were more hands than... Um, there, were, there was a good number of hands, so not necessarily more than I expected, but a, a good amount. I can't speculate just how much interaction a diverse congregation like this might have had with Psalm 5 in the past. Likely you've read through it in personal or family devotions, you've worked through it in a Bible study, or even remember details about it from a previous sermon. Again, with a show of hands, how many of you have ever seen it used or used it yourself as a proof text that God hates the wicked? Numbers are fewer, but there's a few. How many of you have ever seen it used as a call to repentance and worship? The numbers are dwindling. I personally have used Psalm 5 in the past as one of many passages that speaks to God's hatred for the wicked. Not just man's sin abstractly, but God's hatred of the unrepentant sinner, the man who refuses to come to Christ in faith. I think this psalm does that. But I would like for us to see that in context, David's citing of God's hatred for sin is in fact his motivation for repentance, obedience, and worship. 
It is likewise a call for the reader to repentance, worship, and confidence in Yahweh. As we begin our study of Psalm 5, I want to give you a little background, some, some background information to the, to the psalm itself. And I want us to consider the overall structure before we get into the practical lessons from the text. I believe that having an understanding of the structure allows us to appreciate the flow of the passage a little bit more, and it also helps to highlight some of the aspects of Hebrew poetry. As you start to see some of these aspects today from today's sermon, hopefully then you can apply it to your own reading and study of Psalms in the, in the future. As is typical with the Psalm, Psalm 5 begins with an introductory section signifying the addressee, the tune or musical instrument, and the author. Here we read to the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Intriguingly, this psalm is to be accompanied by flutes. This is the only psalm with this accompaniment. Intriguingly, I, I desire to consider all of the implications of what it might mean to have a flute as the accompaniment instead of stringed instruments, especially since the term psalm comes from the word meaning to pluck. And so we see something different going on here, and I was fascinated to find out what that meant. Um, I searched commentaries, and I tried to think about the differences between musical instruments. But you can get similar effects with melancholy in flutes and joyous sounds in flutes as you can from a stringed instrument. And... Unfortunately, I was left wanting, although most scholars and and most translations, I should say, use the word flute, and many commentators discuss the meaning of the Hebrew word as probably meaning flute specifically, or at a minimum, generally speaking, to wind instruments, there's no further discussion about its implications. In contrast, Jewish scholars tend to interpret the word as a type of tune to be played and not a type of instrument at all. So all in all, the meaning is obscure because this is the only occurrence that we have of the word in the Old Testament. And although there are some valid discussions of what the word means and why it means it, we're left with a little more to go on. And although I'm mildly disappointed, I think it's okay. Now, regarding the placement of the psalm and the psalter, the themes of Psalm 4 and 5 are similar. And so they're grouped well in light of this. Likewise, whereas Psalm 4 could be classified as a nighttime psalm, Psalm 5 is a morning psalm. And since we are studying Psalm 5 this morning, I would encourage you to read Psalm 4 this evening as a family before you go to bed tonight. Both psalms show David seeking an audience with God in his prayers, a contrast against the unfaithful, and a request for peace and blessing. Consider some of these highlights from this morning's sermon as you read Psalm 4 together this evening. Now, I was also doing some studies this week in Hebrews 4, and providentially I found several similarities in that chapter as well. So I would encourage you to read both Psalm 4 and Hebrews 4 later today and try and pick out for yourself the similar themes. In considering the structure of Psalm 5, I segment it into two major portions that I would title David's plea in verses 1 through 7 and David's prayer in verses 8 through 12. Throughout the psalm, there is a pattern of request, reason, and contrast. And the request sections are identifiable by the use of verbal imperatives, such as give and consider in verses 1 and 2, and lead and make in verse 8. 
The reason subsections are also easily recognizable with that marked conjunction for, while the contrast sections are marked with the conjunction but in English. So it's very easy to, to follow that in your own English translation. The second major section, David's Prayer, includes a concluding reason, subsection, that closes out both the second half of the psalm and the overall psalm climactically. Now, although the structure and the poetry of the psalms are important for study and interesting on several levels, for at least one of us, as we consider the words of the psalmist, I want us to be considering what it means today for us as modern Christians. My sermon title is Repentance and Prayer for Righteousness. And because I want us to be considering this as a practic- at a practical level, I've broken the psalm into three responses that we can draw from the text. There will be several more applications and call to actions throughout the subsections as we work our way through it. But here are the three main points for this sermon. Number one, keep a short record of accounts regarding your sin. Secondly, pursue righteousness on account of the covenantally loyal love of God. And third, side with the righteousness of God and rejoice in him. So in our first main call to action, come with confidence before the throne of God. We are introduced to our first application. Plead for an audience with Yahweh. David writes, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. As I alluded to, I'm distinguishing the plea of David in verses 1 and 2 from the prayer of David in verse 8. It is a fine line, but I'm drawing it nonetheless, because in these first two verses, David is essentially asking for an audience with these commanding pleas for his case to be heard. Give ear, consider, give heed. The formal request of his prayer comes later after his audience with Yahweh has been established. David's plea for an audience is typically poetic and it's in its restructuring and rephrasing of a similar concept. Parallelism is a word that's often associated with psalms, but it's even more than that, more than parallelism and more than just simple repetition of synonyms. So what we have here is A, what's more B, what's more C? In verses 1 and 2, David is pleading with Yahweh to be heard. And with each request, he intensifies the verb of his request while digressing in the object. And I find this very beautifully poetic. He first asks in A, Yahweh, hear my words. This is a very simple, straightforward request. While in B, he says, don't just hear me, but pay attention, give heed. The word consider is a, is a very good word for translation here, but it's not just consider, but consider with close attention. I have a particular son who likes to talk. Sometimes we merely let him get the words out of his mouth so he can vocalize them and move on. We hear him, but he doesn't seem too concerned that we're paying close attention and we can simply continue with what we're doing. We can hear him talking in the background without us giving much heed to what he is saying, and most of the time that works for the parent and for him. David's request in phrase A is a little bit more than a request for mere audible recognition, yet it is a fairly simple appeal, please hear me or listen. Yahweh, I'm speaking, please hear me. 
Phrase B, consider my meditation, however, is now asking for more attention. Don't just listen, but pay attention to me. In human conversation, we might be looking for eye contact. I know you hear me, but are you paying attention? I'm sure every parent in this room has said it, and I'm sure that every child in this room has heard their parents say, look at me while I'm speaking to you so that I know you heard me. It's not that seeing makes our ears work better, but there is more clarity and understanding from both sides that the message is being delivered and understood accordingly. Furthermore, it is not just his words that David wants acknowledged. His meditation is in fact his sighing or groaning. No words are uttered here, but David needs Yahweh to to pay attention so that he can interpret and understand even David's groaning. Have you ever felt the need to pray and not been able to find the words because your emotions or the gravity of the situation get in the way? This seems to be what David is considering here as well. We will see momentarily that David confidently believed that both his words and his groanings were heard by Yahweh. But Paul speaks to this in Romans 8.26 as well. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit of God in the Christian knows our hearts and makes intercession for us when we don't even know what words to say. Finally, in phrase C, David repeats his request again, and it's nuanced with new terminology. In Hebrew, no word is repeated here. It is a little more difficult to distinguish it in English. However, David's third plea for Yahweh is to listen attentively to the sound of his voice as he utters his cry for help. This third phrase could either be an expansion of the first two or even a summary of them both. David is essentially saying, whatever words or noise my voice utters, articulate or inarticulate, please pay close attention to my pleading and my call for help. And here's where the request is made personally and confidently. Yahweh, you are my king and my God. David is addressing both the authoritative sovereignty and deity of Yahweh. And he states his fealty in the first person. I am coming before you subservently because you are my king and my God. And this statement links the request to the reason. Why should Yahweh listen to David's plea? David says, for to you I will pray. Please pay attention to me because I'm praying to you. This statement reminds me of Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. David, as a humble servant, is stating that his prayer should be heard because he is bringing his request before Yahweh, his king and his God. David understands that there are practical implications to the sovereignty or kingship of Yahweh that demands his obedience and service, and that likewise the deity of Yahweh demands his worship. David expresses both these aspects in this psalm. This must be our perspective as well, as we are called to obey the sovereign king, maker of heaven and earth, and to worship God for his holiness and righteousness. These two aspects of God, his sovereignty and his deity, likewise gives us confidence that he can and will attend to our needs. Our second application is found in verse 3. 
come confidently to the throne of grace. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Verse 3 consists of three assertive statements, A, B, and C. First, David asserts that, in fact, God does hear his voice in the morning. David is confident that Yahweh is hearing and attending to his prayers. An important implication is that David is indeed praying. Believer, you cannot have confidence that God will hear your prayer in the morning if you fail or forget to bring your prayers to God in the morning. In part B, David strengthens that implication by stating that he will or does indeed direct his prayer to God in the morning. Depending on the version from which you may be reading this verse, you will likely get one of three possible interpretations. In my Bible reading and study, I tend to only look at three other translations apart from the original languages. They are the New King James Version, the ESV, and the Lexham English Bible. Although I believe the the LEB has the best translation of the three, for this phrase, the New King James Version is a strong second. I believe, however, that the ESV got it wrong in this case based on their interpretation of the overall context, but not strictly on the available translation of the phrase in Hebrew. It seems that the translators of the ESV are categorizing this psalm in a cultic sense, understood as happening alongside of or in conjunction with the morning sacrifice. The ESV reads, In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. However, in electronic versions of the ESV, they usually have a footnote that provides the alternate reading of, I direct my prayers to you, which is similar to the translation and the interpretation that the New King James provides. The verb translated as direct in the New King James can be understood as to prepare or present either in the cultic sense of preparing a sacrifice for worship or in a legal sense of presenting a case to lay out, to set in rows, to assess, or to even order one's affairs. At a minimum, I believe that the context of Psalm 5 is speaking to the prayers uh, being prepared and presented rather than inferring a context of preparing for the morning sacrifice. Although the daily sacrifices did take place on a regular basis every morning and every evening, it seems the straightforward context of this psalm is actual personal morning prayer. Furthermore, I think more clarity can be offered in the translation, so I translate it myself as, I present my case, or I order my affairs before you. The LEB similarly reads, in the morning I will set forth my case to you. I think this fits the context very well, as we'll see in verses 4 and following, with David's reason or rationale for his regular morning prayer. Every morning, David assesses his own affairs, setting up his case to present before Yahweh. He is considering the state of his sin, his need for repentance, and his need for direction from God. And having reflected on this condition, he states before Yahweh, in the morning, I will direct it to you. David closes this triad with a statement, and I will look up. There are also three ways that this small phrase can be translated and understood, and I believe that all three are valid. I will share with you my opinion on the preferred interpretation, but it is simply my opinion based on the options available and not because the others are wrong per se. There is a very beautiful rendition of Psalm 5 as a song 
that takes its lyrics directly from the King James Version of verses 1 through 3. And then it contains a bridge of sorts that expands on this phrase, look up. And then he uses it to summarize the focus of the remainder of the psalm, which is a response of worship. This is the first option for interpreting this phrase. The songwriter writes, Look up, hold your head high, come before the throne with confidence. You can hold your head up high. Come with boldness, come with confidence. Your head held high, your heart bowed down. Come with confidence to worship the Lord, for he is worthy. He is worthy. The author's understanding of look up is a common interpretation of looking up in confidence. A believer can look up in confidence in the throne room of heaven because we are invited. We have been given access. Equally, we can look up in confidence because the believer is assured that her sins will be forgiven when they are confessed. The believer who prays in confidence knows that he is praying to the sovereign king and God of the universe with the power to answer any prayer for the good of the saint and the glory of God. Likewise, the believer who prays in confidence in light of scripture knows that God will faithfully fulfill his word and every promise he has ever made. Praying in confidence to our king and our God is certainly within the constraints of this psalm. However, I also think that the phrase, and I will look up, should rightly be understood as, and I will be watchful. Herein lies the other two interpretations for watchfulness. On the one hand, having prayed, the believer can look up and be watchful for what God will do to act on behalf of the prayer of the faithful. On the other hand, the believer who has ordered his ways and prepared his case before God, having repented of sins confessed, can now look up and continue to be watchful to follow in God's paths of righteousness, being quick to repentance when he again goes astray. I think both of these understandings are also consistent with the context of the psalm, and both can be done simultaneously. In these first three verses, then, we have observed David's plea to his king and his God that his voice and his groanings would be heard, and he ensures himself and the reader that he is confident that Yahweh does indeed hear his prayers. The modern Christian is likewise called to plead for an audience with Yahweh and to come confidently before the throne of grace. David then proceeds to explain the reason, the importance, the rationale for his plea to be heard and for him to order his steps before Yahweh. And here's the Christian's proper response. Put wickedness far from you. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Here are those so-called proof text verses of which we were earlier speaking. God does not take pleasure in wickedness, and he does not allow evil to dwell in his presence. The psalmist demonstrates that God does not make a distinction between hating the sin but loving the sinner. Rather, it is the sinner who faces God's just wrath. It is the unrepentant sinner that God will cast into hell with everlasting torment, not merely all the wicked deeds of men from eternity past. The known justice of God and his attributes of holiness and righteousness instill a fear compelling obedience for the psalmist. As a faithful servant, David desires to be in the presence of God. He knows that no wickedness can dwell with God, so he regularly sets his accounts straight with his king and his God in faithful submission. 
This reminds me of Job, who regularly offered sacrifices for his children, just in case they sinned unwittingly or cursed God in their hearts. These thoughts are further expressed as the psalmist continues. Along with keeping a short account of our sins before God, the Christian is called to pursue righteousness on account of the covenantally loyal love of God. This is our second main point this morning. Pursue righteousness on account of the covenantally loyal love of God. In verses 7 through 9, we see David contrast himself with the wicked and evildoers in verse 7, his primary prayer request in verse 8, and his justification why his prayer should be answered affirmatively in verse 9. First, we see that we are to humble ourselves in worship. Humble yourself in worship. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. In David's contrastive statement, he is not merely demonstrating that he is not like the rebellious. He is not staking his case that, uh, on the fact that they are evil and he is good. Rather, David is humbly acknowledging that it is only because of the chesed, the covenantally loyal love of Yahweh, that he has any standing with God at all. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely what we have in Christ. It is not our own righteousness that saves us and renews our relationship with God, but our salvation is by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It is Yahweh alone that made the covenant with David to establish a kingdom in anticipation of the coming King Messiah. And it is Yahweh alone that established the new covenant that said that his people would have their hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh, so that in faith we can stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we could not and died the death that we could not, so that we could have a right relationship with God. Furthermore, as I alluded to earlier, David clarifies that his correct understanding of both the justice and the mercy of God and a true understanding of himself spurred him to fearful obedience and proper worship. Having pleaded for an audience and having now presented his case of repentance and fealty or worship and obedience, David is now ready to present his prayer. For us, it is an instruction to lean on the word of the Lord. David prays, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. David's prayer is that Yahweh would lead him in righteousness. David does not want to be like the wicked that he identifies here as his enemies. David wants to be a faithful servant and worshiper of his king and his God. He has acknowledged that it is only because of the covenantally loyal love of God that he even has a right to come in worship. David desires that Yahweh continue to lead and guide him, to smooth his path, to prop him up and enable him to further obedience and service. God alone can give him the wisdom or the smooth path to know and understand the ways and the law of God. Believer, this needs to be our prayer as well. We must humbly acknowledge that it is nothing good in us that has drawn God to us. In fact, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Furthermore, we must seek the wisdom of God and the direction of the Holy Spirit to guide us through his word that he has given us. 
As Peter has professed, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. The author of Hebrews likewise declares, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Furthermore, as Paul instructed Timothy, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known that the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. And the Apostle James also instructs the believer to pray in faith and confidence for the wisdom of God. Like David, these are all things that we are called to pursue. And he again cycles into the reason that spurred him to pursue God's leading. David's desire, as ours should be, to avoid the sins of the wicked, in this case, lies, false witness, and injustice. This is our third application. Avoid the sins of deceit and injustice. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. David explains that there is no faithfulness in the mouth of the wicked. There is neither faithfulness in the form of submission to Yahweh as king and God, nor is there any faithfulness to the truth in their mouth. They are willing to lie to bear false witness, to flatter, to make bribes for their benefit, and to the, often the detriment of others, sometimes even at the cost of one's life because of false testimonies. Death is in their throat. Not only is it described as a grave, but it remains open so that the stench of death readily pours out. As a king himself, David hates these wicked men. David desired to be a just and righteous king, and any in his kingdom who treated the poor unjustly, used false weights, lied in court, or otherwise conned others for their selfish gain were enemies to David. David wanted no part of that because he knew that Yahweh wanted no part in that. David then continues to a form of imprecatory prayer against these wicked. And thus we are called to side with the righteousness of God and rejoice in him. And here we have our call to pray for justice. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Although the words of David are an imprecatory prayer, invoking judgment upon the enemies of God, note the restraint in David's prayer. He wants God's justice to be done so that the wicked would be held accountable for their sin and rebellion. But David isn't merely asking that they be struck by lightning and utterly destroyed or hunted down and killed. He is asking for the ironic justice that their own words of lies and corruption would fall back on them in evil than on those upon whom they target. Can you think of other cases of ironic justice like this that are demonstrated throughout Scripture? I can think of at least two that readily come to mind. The first is Haman in the book of Esther who erected a post that he wanted to hang Mordecai upon. Yet he was brought to justice and impaled upon his own stake. Likewise, the corrupt administrators of Daniel's day in Daniel 6 
wanted to be rid of Daniel by devising a scheme that would result in Daniel being cast into the pit of lions. Rather than being consumed, Daniel was vindicated by Yahweh, and it was the wicked administrators and their families who had their bones crushed by the lions and devoured. In verses 11 and 12, David's final contrasting statement is a request that the faithful, unlike the wicked, would obediently respond in worship to God. He further asserts confidently that his request is consistent with the character of God. Believer, rejoice and trust in God. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround them as with a shield. What is the first question and answer to the shorter catechism? What is the chief end of man? That man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. David understood that the righteous believer needn't merely obey and serve out of the fear of Yahweh's sovereignty and righteous justice. If we truly hope and trust in Yahweh, we may rejoice and shout for joy, because when God is for us, who can be against us? Yahweh defends those who love and trust in him. The songs of Korah likewise asserted in Psalm 8411, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We have then both a request that God would grant us joy and blessing, as well as prompting that our right response is joy and worship in light of God's protection and blessing, and that he assured and has granted to those who trust in him these same blessings of joy and right worship. Through the words of David, you are compelled as a believer to come with confidence before the throne of God. Plead for an audience with Yahweh. Come confidently to the throne of grace and put wickedness far from you. To pursue righteousness on account of the covenantally loyal love of God. Humble yourself in worship. Lean on the word of the Lord and avoid the sins of deceit and injustice. We are called to side with the righteousness of God and to rejoice in him. Pray for justice and ultimately rejoice and trust in God. However, not only is this psalm a call to action for the believer, it is a warning and a call to repentance for any who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in faith. There is no good deed that you can do to reconcile your relationship with God. You must humbly bow the knee and take Jesus as the Lord of your life. You must say, I will follow you for the rest of my life. You must repent of your sins, which means that you must hate them, turn away from them, and cling to the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If you have never done this, I pray that you will do that today, even before you rise from your seat. Also, as a final reminder, I want to encourage you to read two other passages this evening both Psalm 4 and Hebrews 4, and consider the similarities between these two passages and Psalm 5 that we have studied this morning. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you hear our prayers, that you have called us into your presence, that you've given us intercessors, our mediator, the Lord Christ Jesus, and 
the Holy Spirit who, understanding our hearts, can communicate to you when we don't even have the words to express our needs and our desires. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, enable us for further worship. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.